Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news, developments, and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Roscoe, coming to you from New York City. We are joined today from a variety of points by Rosa Brooks who holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center. How are you today, Rosa? Hi, David. We are also joined today by Ambassador Douglas Lute, Ambassador Lute's former U.S. Permanent Representative to NATO, former Deputy National Security Advisor, a senior military officer. How are you today, Doug? I'm well, thank you. And by Ambassador Bill Taylor, who is the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, vice president for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. How are you doing today, Bill? Good, David. Thanks for having me here. Well, uh, thanks to all of you. Clearly, our focus remains on Ukraine. And the first thing I need to do is go around to each of you and get your kind of situation report. Where do you think we are? What do you think is most significant that's going on now? Let me start with you, Bill. So I look forward to hearing uh, Doug's Doug's uh, view on this question, in particular on the military side. On the uh, on the civilian side, David, we continue to see President Vladimir Zelensky being a real leader of his nation, stepping up to be a real leader. I've got we all have good friends uh, in in Ukraine. One in particular uh, who has been in and out of the government. Uh, he's, he joined the Territorial Defense Forces. He took his family out to West Ukraine, dropped off with his father and drove back to Kiev, joined the Territorial Defense Force. And then just today, actually early this morning, <clears throat> wrote me that he is going into the regular army. And he said he is so proud to be serving under Vladimir Zelensky. This is a fellow, by the way, who actually was associated politically with uh, Petro Poroshenko. And, and they, Poroshenko and, and uh, Zelensky, as we know, were candidates against each other 
and have no love for each other up until about a week ago, at which time they have united. And this is the main message, David, that I want to give that President Zelensky has unified the country. Opposition leaders are with him, not just President Poroshenko, others as well that we can talk about. And the, the army is proud of him. This guy that I'm in touch with uh, on a regular basis is so proud that, that Zelensky is still there, is still in Kiev. You know, famously said, you know, we offered to help him get out. And he famously said, I need ammunition, not a ride. This guy is, is a real leader. That's what's defining right now this battle, this fight, this war, uh, I think, David, in, uh, in Ukraine. That is, it's the Ukrainian resistance. Right now, it's the government and, uh, and Zelensky is leading it. So, Doug, you know, I, I think, you know, Bill said he was going to address the civilian side, but I think what he's done is he's addressed the X factor. And it seems to me that that may well be the X factor that's making the difference so far on the military side. But do you agree? I think we're only in the very early days uh, of a long, brutal campaign. It is clear already, however, in these early days that Russia is off its timetables. It's off its timelines. There's no way that they expected to be this sort of stymied on multiple fronts. So north, northeast and south. They really don't have any tactical momentum in any one of those axes, which is sort of surprising, right? I expect that before Putin backs down, he will double down. And by double down, I mean he will uh, besiege the big cities. So the 1.4 million people in Kharkiv, the 3 million plus in Kyiv. He will attack them with mass artillery and rocket and missile fires. He will probably avoid a front end, front edge sort of infantry on infantry assault if he can, try to sort of shell them into submission. This, of course, will have tremendous effects on civilian infrastructure, civilian casualties, and so forth. But Putin's at a point where that's not going to bother him enormously. I think when we think, when we consider this kind of protracted attrition warfare, a useful model is to think back 20 years to the Russian campaign in Chechnya and the resulting destruction of the capital city of Grozny. That's what I fear is in line for these uh, Ukrainian cities. But to Bill's point about morale, whenever it seems to me in, in military history, at least my memory, quick memory, off the top of my head memory of military history, where you had an asymmetry between material effects, so equipment, troops, ammunition, and so forth, competing with a superior moral effect, moral capability, that the moral always wins, tends to win over the intangible physical every time. And to Bill's point, I think the Ukrainians have a very distinct edge on morale and uh, willpower. Interesting. Rosa, what's your take? Two things strike me. I mean, I was one of the many people who thought it was very unlikely that, that Putin would do this. I thought he would keep nibbling around the edges, trying to stay just under the threshold that would trigger a really catastrophic response from Europeans, the US, et cetera. And obviously, that's not what he did. He, he, he went all in. And it makes me worried. <laughs> It does. I mean, I, you know, I think I've always thought of Putin as a highly rational actor, not a strategic genius, but somebody who was very smart about staying, going just up to the line, sticking a few toes across it, and then taking his toe back before anybody could stomp on it. 
And this is not that, you know, this is a, a, a huge, huge gamble that he's taken. And so far, it does not seem like it's paying off. It's, you know, the Russian economy is, in, is, is tanking, the ruble has tanked. I've always assumed that Putin is primarily playing to a domestic audience. I don't know, you know, it's a complete black box. What is happening? Who does he talk to? I, I assume U.S. intelligence has more insight than I have. But um, I do wonder, David, I had the same thought that I think you, you had and you wrote about this in your recent USA Today column. Could this end up being the end of Putin? You know, do things get so bad for Russia as a result of Putin's big gamble that the people who are close to him finally kind of go, OK, we, we've had enough. This, this doesn't make any sense for us. Does he face either an elite rebellion or a huge popular rebellion at some point because of this? I think it's an interesting question. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, as Doug pointed out, we're at an early phase of what could be a, a long war of attrition. But one of the interesting complications in all of this, Bill, is that so much of what the West can do is limited to the diplomatic sphere. Because particularly with Putin rattling his nuclear saber, there is no appetite whatsoever for Western forces to get directly involved. So we've got essentially three options. We can provide them with military and financial aid, humanitarian aid. We can sanction them in a big sweeping way and squeeze their economy. And we can mobilize the allies and move NATO into forward positions and try to keep the war from spilling over, but also demonstrate our resolve. So far, the Allies have, I think, outperformed expectations in, in all of those areas. But as this conversation indicates, things are likely to get worse. And the Allies are going to face this, this issue. Do we do more? Should we do more? Is there anything more we can do? So I'd like to hear from each of you as to what the answer to that question is, starting with you, Bill. Short answer, David, is yes. There is more that can be done. And so far, as you say, the Allies have, have stood up. Now, I, I will, the Allies have stood up. There's no doubt. I mean, the Germans just have changed their incredible you know, switch to, uh, to 2% of GDP for defense and uh, providing weapons into the combat zone. This is incredible. Uh, this is a major turnaround. You know, you have the Swiss who are on our side now. This is no longer the neutral play. You know, so there, there has been a major change in organizations. Think of all the different organizations that are now just throwing Russians out or not letting them compete. Or, you know, it's the overwhelming tide of support for Ukraine and, and opposition to what Russia is doing is, is amazing. And I will give the Biden administration a lot of credit. I have never seen a diplomatic effort like this. People will be smarter than I am and better historians than I am on this. But this is an incredible diplomatic achievement, not just the Biden administration, but I give the Biden administration a lot of credit for what they've done in terms of the phone calls and the meetings and the statements and the you know, repeated statements. I mean, President Biden was on the phone again with President Zelensky just this morning and over and over and over. So is that, that's a major accomplishment. And I don't see, David, an answer to your question, I don't see that stopping. President Linsky got a standing ovation, apparently, when he addressed the uh, European Parliament here today. I would, um, I, I predict that he'll get a standing ovation tonight at the State of the Union. 
somehow or other. I don't know if he'll show up or not, but but his name will be raised, I bet. And it'll be bipartisan. I think that this is a, a major accomplishment. On And I, I'd love to get Doug and, and Rose's sense on this thing, but there's more that can be done on the military side. I was just talking to some Ukrainians who know about this uh, this morning. And for example, one thing that we haven't done yet that is now being considered is countering the Russian electronic warfare against the Ukrainian Air Force. And we can do this. You know, that's something that we haven't done that we can do. Doug will know much better than I about how we do this. But there there are ways to allow the Ukrainian Air Force to operate, which they're having a hard time now because of the Russian jamming. So so that's an example. Uh, Another example, I got a request from, again, the uh, Ukrainian source saying, you know, this multiple launch rocket system, MLRS, there probably are stocks. Again, Doug will know this much better than I in Europe. And if we can get it in, and there are ways to get it in now, you know, this is tricky. You have to go, you can't land any aircraft anywhere anymore with these heavy, with these supplies. You have to put it in over land and that's going to slow things down, but you can get it in. Humanitarian, you mentioned that that's going in as well. Sanctions. Yeah, there's more to be done. One big one is on oil. We are still buying a whole lot of oil and gas uh, from the Russians and that's helping them, even though Exactly as Rosa said, you know, we are hammering the sanctions so far are hammering the Russian economy. Someone asked me today, are, are the Russian people noticing? Yeah, they're noticing. Everybody who's been to Moscow or been to Kiev, you know, on, on every street corner, there is the exchange rate. Three or four times on a block, there's the exchange rate. The Russians know what's what's going on with their exchange rate. And it's terrible that they're noticing. And so, uh, so the short answer for me, David, is yes, but I'd love to hear Doug and, and Rosa. Doug? The diplomatic surge, as I like to refer to it, having been the victim or the, 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 the veteran, not the victim, of a couple of military surges, I'd like to refer to this as a diplomatic surge. I'd, in my 40 years of federal government experience, I've never seen such a compressed and intensive effort to a diplomatic end. It wasn't sufficient at the end of the day to deter Vladimir Putin. But we're still reaping the benefits of the last two months of diplomacy. And we're reaping it in the form of the coherence of the NATO alliance, the alignment of the US, the UK, and the EU on sanctions and so forth, and the breadth and depth of the sanctions regime. So the diplomatic surge has paid off. And one of the things we have to do going forward is sustain it. This is not a one-shot deal. This is not a sort of a plane that's on autopilot. It has to be sustained. The same is true of the sanctions regime. There will be gaps and seams and divides in the sanctions regime, and that's going to require careful attention to sustain this, plug the gaps, close the seams, and so forth. So, So maintenance will be a big part of what can be done going forward. More specifically and tangibly on the logistics side, We should be stockpiling now, in my view, A, humanitarian assistance on the NATO borders with Ukraine. So Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania, although Hungary may may or may not allow refugees in, but stockpiling humanitarian supplies because we've seen just in the last couple of days, the first half a million Ukrainians become refugees. So a big piece of keeping the coalition together And sustaining the Ukrainian will in this fight lays with caring for these refugees. On the military assistance side, 
I would go lighter than the multiple launch rocket system that, that Bill suggested. And, and I think we should be stockpiling man portable, as it turns out, man and woman portable stingers and javelins and other similar anti-tank, anti-air systems that are light, easily transportable, easy to distribute, right? Don't require much training. We should be stockpiling them now along this NATO border with Western Ukraine. And furthermore, go the next step, which is to design a sort of FedEx turnkey truck-based delivery system that we can turn loaded trucks with weapons, rations, water, medical supplies over to Ukrainian drivers who would then be responsible for distributing based on government instructions. While this is, I think, the chore in front of us, it's not without hazard. Look, eventually, if Putin's able to secure the eastern half of the country, his attention will turn to the western half of the country. And these supply routes or resupply routes from NATO into Ukraine, into the western half of Ukraine, will draw his attention. And therein lies a risk of escalation and so forth. But now's the time to do it. He's occupied completely right now, fixated on what's happening in the East. Now is the time to prepare in Western Ukraine. Excellent. Rosa. I defer completely to, to Doug on the military side. I think what worries me, if your question, David, is, is, is there more we could be doing? Of course, there's more we could be doing. To me, the question is, what can we do that will not trigger escalation? You know, and, and obviously, Russia is a nuclear state. And Putin has made it perfectly clear that at least as, as a at least as a rhetorical thread, right? He's been happy to dangle that in front of us as a, you know, and and I wish we knew more about Putin's mental state because that's what worries me most. I mean, it's it's hard to see an end game for him right now in, in what's happening. It's hard to see what constitutes success. It's hard to see anything looking like complete success for him. Even if the Russians managed to take control of every major city, they managed to topple the current government, as our own experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan should have reminded him, if not their own experiences in Afghanistan and elsewhere. It's one thing to take over cities. It's another thing to hold them and to hold a whole country in the face of, of ongoing resistance from a population that, that, in the case of Ukraine, is very, very likely to show sustained resistance. Um, so I don't see how Putin looks at this and sees something good for him coming out of this, which raises the question of where is he? And clearly, clearly what he's done is incredibly reckless, but where between extremely reckless and insane are we at this point in, in Putin's mind? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't know that anybody does, but that's what worries me most because, because of course, as Bill and Doug have said, there's lots more we could do. I just worry about what, if anything, is the thing that, that triggers escalation. And I don't know what that is, and I wish I did. But that's what, you know, inevitably, when you're, when you're talking about a, a, a country that possesses nuclear weapons, that's what you have to worry about. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a downside of that, too, though, Bill. And, and, and I mean, of course, we have to worry about it. But the other thing is, that Putin seems to have calculated that if he threatens to use nuclear weapons, he can do whatever he wants and nobody will challenge it. What do you do about that? 
I agree with Rosa. This is a hard question. Um, I've had uh, conversations that have been on both sides of this question. One, one is, you know, Condi Rice and President Macron and even Mike McFall and maybe others, <laughs> maybe Rosa and Doug and you, David. But they, the, at least those three have said, this is a different guy. You know, this is not the same guy that that I knew before, whatever, however long it was for, for Condi or, or Mike. Or, and Condi thinks he's unhinged. And you got to respect that. I've talked to other people who say and we know, you know something about unhinged leaders, right? It can happen. And we do know. We do know something about unhinged leaders. <laughs> we do. And on the other side, people tell me, uh, uh, scholars and, and people who have looked at Russia for a long time, indeed looked at Putin for a long time, and will say, you know, we don't really exactly what Rosa said. We don't really know what's going on in his head. What we do know is that he has in the past been cautious. He's been careful. He's made some bets that paid off. This is a bigger bet. Uh, you, you, Rose, exactly right. I mean, this is this is a big risk. And so it is, is he is he unhinged um, or does his is his calculation different? People on the rational side, the people who argue that he's not crazy, that he's still rational, but his his evaluation of costs and benefits are different than ours. What what matters to him a lot obviously, is staying in power. But even that, I mean, it's, again, backing out of his head and going back to our head, it looks from here like he could be losing in that calculation. He could be, he could be facing a serious backlash in Russia. We've read about these, there's, there's at least one very senior general, General Ivashov, um, who, what, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago now, just put this letter up saying, Mr. President, don't do this. If you do this, you could, it, it could result in an uprising. That's a word to use, an uprising. This would be a color revolution in Russia. You could have people in the, in the streets, in the Maidans around, around uh, Russia. So I don't know the answer to this one. Doug, I think I've heard you say that this is more performance than, than, uh, than substance, but Rose is right to worry. Yeah, I think you, you have to worry, right? When um, somebody rattles the nuclear saber, uh, as he's done just recently, I think what will be watched very carefully here is to see if there's any connection, though, between his rhetoric, which actually, you know, there's four stages of nuclear alert posture in, in the Russian doctrine. The normal status quo is the lowest one. He moved it up one notch. It's at sort of a somewhat elevated alert status. What will be important here is to watch very carefully the tangible, physical, quantifiable moves that might follow. So, for example, does he put the ballistic missile submarines to sea? Does he move them out of port? Does he disperse the nuclear-capable bomber force? For the non-strategic tactical systems, shorter-range systems, does he begin to move the warheads to co-locate them with the delivery systems? Typically, in Russian doctrine, they're not co-located. Does the command and control system, do we detect any changes there in the way they are, are communicating with one another? So far, so good. There are no reports of any of those physical changes that reflect his uptick in the rhetoric. But that's what we need to pay careful attention to. One, one further thought about this. I do worry about collective failures of imagination here. Um, and if I could draw a parallel, I, you know, I, I think the invasion of Ukraine in some ways is not unlike January 6th, the insurrection of the Capitol, right? That everybody was aware that there's a hypothetical risk. Um, you know, the very, this very unlikely thing could happen. Putin could decide to invade Ukraine. Not likely, but he could. 
there could be a violent extremist insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, not likely, but it could happen. But because we thought it was so unlikely, we didn't bother to really plan for the what ifs. You know, what if it actually does? And, and I do worry about the, the same thing here. You know, I think that the, the really dire scenarios are, are so appalling, you know, that it's very tempting to just kind of go like, OK, no, 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 that's not going to happen. It's so unlikely. He can't be that crazy, et cetera. But, but you know, at risk of, uh, well, as you know, in my usual, I'm looking for an opportunity to use my bunker. You know, I, I actually think that we should be talking about the, the worst case scenarios, too, not because I think they're most likely, but because, as we've discovered, the extremely unlikely things can happen. And when we're not prepared, things get very bad very fast. We could also do it on the upside. We can't imagine Putin backing down right now. Well, let's try to imagine it, you know, and, and if there's a way that we could imagine it, whether it's these negotiations that they tried yesterday or, or, or whether it's really bogged down and he's got some real problems, he's got, he's got uh, logistics problems, he's got maintenance problems, he can't get the fuel to, you know, he, he could have a big military problem and it leads him to, do, to look for something else and maybe it's negotiation. We can use our imagination to think about what might cause him to back down, to, to walk back from this. You and I were both on the wrong side of that analysis. And I was certainly on the wrong side of this analysis. I, I gave it 55-45 against an invasion. Well, that was wrong. But I still think it's valuable to think about how to try to imagine how we might and then push in that direction, do things that would, that would push in that direction without... We can all look at the worst case. You know, he'll never back down. He's going to go for the, he's going to go, he's going to level Kiev, which is heartbreaking for me to think that that was, you know, you think of Grozny and you think of Kiev, you can't, but uh, you, and we got to think about that. We have to be, you know, try to def defend ourselves and defend themselves against that. But looking at the upside too, we ought to try. This goes back to the earlier point about what needs to be done. I mean, one of the things we need to do is do this sort of positive and negative analysis and then consult with allies, right? So we're bringing them along. We're bringing their analysis alongside ours. Uh, and then we also need to connect sanctions and the negatives, right? The sticks with uh, the potential positive upsides. I mean, is there a way that we could say with this set of sanctions, this is what you would need to do, Mr. Putin and your followers, in order to relieve some of these sanctions? So make, it, make the path very clear. We often are quick to impose sanctions, but then we're fuzzy. We're vague in terms of exactly how do you get out of these sanctions? This might be a case to Bill's point where the positive, the positive analysis could be connected to some sort of sanctions relief based on performance, right? Based on, based on delivery. So this is the point normally in our podcast where we take a, a brief break uh, so that the folks who are joining us from the general public can wish they had signed up to be members and go click on membership so they can hear the rest of the podcast and the rest of your members can smugly just sit there and the rest of the podcast will pick up in one second. 